Well, good afternoon, church. I hope you're ready to dig into the Word of God. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. We're nearing the end of our expositions in this wonderful book. It's been a wonderful journey uh, for many of us, and and what a blessing it is to see these applicatory uh, things that he's addressing. If you'll remember, that chapter 13 is really the application of chapters 1 through 12 and all of those truths that were shared uh, about Christ and the superiority of Christ um, and all of that. And then chapter 13 begins with these practical things. And, and last time it was verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, the marriage bed is to be undefiled, fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The writer is concerned for the purity of the people. And those are sins that are pretty uh, obvious, right? Sexual immorality is pretty huge. But there's also sins that are more subtle. And that's what we come to today. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money and being content. Now, you know, if somebody's sexually immoral and you know it, you can look at them and, and, and you know it, right? But you can't look at somebody and tell if they're covetous or not, right? It's more subtle. And so we're going to unpack this today. Verse 5, he addresses this topic of loving money and greed and covetousness. And it's an irony that that follows the section on sexual immorality because oftentimes sex and money go together, don't they? Those vices kind of interlock oftentimes. Charles Spurgeon said, I heard a lot of people share how they've sinned, and I've had people come to me to make a confession of sin. But in all my life, I've never had one person come and confess the sin of covetousness to me. You see, uh, you can only have a right attitude about material things when your heart is right about spiritual things, right? If, if, if your heart's right about spiritual things, most likely you'll have the proper attitude about uh, material things. And really, the writer's been, been writing to tell us that <clears throat> our hope is in a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly one. Some professing Christians actually are promoting greed. You think of the prosperity gospel, right? Our genie who art in heaven, a new Mercedes. Yeah, that kind of thing, right? That just feeds on this materialistic lust for a lust for material things. Or, you know, some, like the guy in Texas, that you can live your best life now and be successful and have businesses and all of this kind of stuff, right? Joel Olstein. <clears throat> it's an irony that even on our currency, our currency, what does it say? In God we trust. Now, I don't know if the nation would really, I think there's probably many in our nation that would love to remove that, but we're going to see today that the writer says the reason why we can be content, and the reason why we can be free from the love of money is because we do trust in God, because He is one that will never leave us and never forsake us. He is the one that is an ever helper for His people. So let's read... Um, Verses 1 to 6, just to get the fuller context. The title is, Put Your Confidence in God, Not Money. Verse 1, Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for 
By this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Let's pray. Father, indeed, do give us understanding into this text this day. Lord, we thank you that this is something that's very practical, something that, that no doubt at, at different times in our life we've all been guilty of this, one of perhaps loving money too much, um, and then on the other hand, not trusting you as we ought, and being a discontented, grumbling people. And so Lord, have your way in each and every heart this day, that we would be those that live our lives in a manner of worship for you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, back at the end of chapter 12, you know, I keep referring to this because in, in verse 28, he says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we offer an acceptable service with reverence and awe. That's living our life in worship for him. We've had this unshakable kingdom. We have all of these spiritual riches, and now let us show gratitude. And so really chapter 13 is a an application of even that very verse. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect loving strangers, hospitality. Do not neglect, uh, remember the prisoners, honor marriage. God defines marriage. He's the one that created it. Marriage was instituted for, to meet the very needs of man. And it's not just some legal contract. It's a holy covenant before God. And that's why there are vows Marriage is also the building block for society, the family units, right? And so, in the purity of marriage is absolutely essential. Well, as we come to our text today, I, I want you to keep this question in your mind, or this statement, we'll say. Um, what is your attitude towards money? What is your attitude towards money? You see, your attitude towards money Test the authenticity, the authenticity of your devotion to God. When you're in trouble, do you run to Him? Do you trust Him? When you lack what others have, are you okay with that and to be content? So we'll look at this under three heads. I have Christian contentment is the cure for loving money. That's verse 5a and b. Christ's sustaining presence is comforting for his people. That's 5C, and then verse 6, trusting God leads to contentment. So first of all, uh, this, these first two phrases, uh, make sure that your character, make sure that in the New American Standard is italicized, that's because it's not in the Greek. But it's supplied there because this has the force of an imperative. These two uh, imperatival clauses, the first negative, the second positive, that your character be free from the love of money, and that you be content with what you have. 
lusting after material riches in whatever form that is, is a reflection on your character. The word for character here and the original means a, a manner in which something is done. Um, the second definition, which applies here, is it's the way in which a person behaves. It's about the customs and the kind of things that they do in this life. It's actually used in the um, Greek translation of the Old Testament many times regarding customs. It's the custom. It's your character. It's what you do. And this loving money is literally uh, philo um, or goros, which is silver. So it's loving silver, but it has the alpha primitive at the front. So it's free from loving. All of that free from loving money is just one word. It only occurs in one other place, and that's in regard to the elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3.3. You have places like the Apostle Paul, as he's leaving Ephesus after three years and meeting with the elders in Acts 20, where he says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. He could say with a clear conscience, I've been here for three years. And, you know, Paul didn't have the big mansion. He didn't drive the Rolls Royce or whatever, the Mercedes. I mean, you know, I mean, Paul lived a pretty meager life, right? And he could say with a clear conscience, I've coveted no one's silver or gold. So, why does the writer bring this up? Why does he bring this up? He, you'll remember back in chapter uh, 10, he commended them and We'll see here that you showed sympathy for the prisoners and joyfully accepted the seizure of your property, knowing that you yourselves have a better possession. You were made a public spectacle uh, through all of these tribulations, and you shared with others as they were so treated. I believe there was a renewed threat of persecution. This is around the time Nero's on the scene. The Christian persecution is beginning to heat up, and there was a threat of renewed persecution. What I just read to you back in chapter 10 was likely several years ago where they joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. They were subject to public abuse and arrest and imprisonment, but they did that in a way that, in which their faith remained steadfast. Now, perhaps many of them had regained some possessions over the years. Uh, maybe they're looking at possessions a little bit differently. I don't want to lose all those again, right? It could be something along those lines. Um, others perhaps began to love money and to acquire more and more possessions. And the writer reminds them that the promises of God, that God will never leave you, will never forsake you. You don't have to have an inordinate lust towards possessions. You see, in verse 2, he said we're to, literally, hospitality to strangers is loving strangers, right? But we can't love strangers if you're loving money. You see? You're going to be consumed with the one. And by the way, I want to qualify. He's not prohibiting the planning for your future, a leaving an inheritance for your children, uh, but rather it's the constant drive and desire for more and more wealth and possessions. There's certainly nothing wrong with saving for uh, your future and your older years, uh, so that you're not a burden to society or a burden to your children. So there is certainly a place for that. You work with your hands, and you work hard, and you store something away. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing to leave an inheritance for, it even says in the Proverbs, your children's children. So even grandchildren are in view. 
The Bible actually commands hard work. That may come as a shock to some of you, especially in our day in society. Universal basic income, food stamps, all of these things. These things, the assistance like welfare and all that should be a very temporary thing. But it's become a permanent thing and people are just used to this. Milking the system, being lazy, not willing to work hard with their hands. The Bible condemns laziness. In fact, the warning in 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. See, we, men especially, have a responsibility to provide for our own, to work hard, to make sure that we're meeting the needs of our family. Furthermore, the Bible does not condemn wealth, right? I mean, some of our greatest heroes in the faith were extremely wealthy, right? But the, 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 the touchstone is were they covetous? Were they lusting for more? Oftentimes, it's by hard work. You think of Abraham, you think of Job and others. Um, it's important that, remember, that we remember all things belong to God. And so if God has blessed you with wealth to have the right attitude, that you want to see the kingdom furthered, you want to be generous to those that, that have not been blessed as much. But there's a danger. Paul warns later in 1 Timothy and verse six, or chapter 6 and verse 9, but those who want to get rich, right, they want to lust for it, Fall in temptation and a snare. Temptation and a snare. You're in, the, you're in the woods, you're heading towards this, and you're in a bear trap. Your foot's there and it's clenched. You can't get out of it. You can cut off the leg, cut off the foot, and escape and get by. That's the force of the language. And so they fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires, which, watch this, plunge men into ruin and destruction. Those are strong warnings. The verse right after it, you know uh, a little more, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money in of itself is not evil. Okay? It's, it's not evil. It's the love of money that can also, that, that can be the root of so much. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What Paul is saying is the love of money can lead to apostasy. It's the very thing what this writer has warned them a few times, right? And throughout the book, see to it that you do not drift away from the faith. This little one, two degrees off, five degrees off, and the next thing you know, you're so far away from the straight and narrow. See to it that you don't drift away. Another facet of this is that it's difficult to, to obey, verse 1, to love your brother if you're, not, if you're just so concerned with acquiring and, uh, with riches. It's an indication that you are selfish. And also, you might say, well, boy, I'm so glad I don't have very much. I certainly will never fall into this. Is that true? No. So the poorest man can be guilty of being covetous and longing for money, right? You know, it's we need to realize that. So it's not just the rich or those who are, you know, at any uh, economic level. 
There's this law of getting and wanting. The more you get, the more you want, right? If your focus is on material things, and your getting will never catch up to what you're wanting and lusting for and longing for. This is nothing short of greed, which is no small sin. Greed has kept many out of the kingdom of heaven and causes the loss of joy in believers. Mark it down well. If you are trusting in money, you are demonstrating distrust in God. Right? How can you say you're trusting God if you're trusting in money? I mean, God's the one that said He'll never leave us, He'll never forsake us, that He'll meet our needs, He'll give us our daily bread. How in the world can we long and trust in money and say that we trust God? In Luke 16, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So clear. It occurs in the Sermon on the Mount as well, right? Now, was there anybody in the days of Jesus that maybe he had in mind that were lovers of money? The very next verse goes on to say, Luke 16, 14, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. So... There's no shortage of bad examples. You think of Achan back in the book of Joshua, chapter 6. They're told to go in to destroy Jericho. There were certain things under the ban. Do not take any of the silver, gold, or whatever. There was other things under the ban. But what happens, he gets greedy, and he took some stuff, and he dug a hole under, inside his tent and buried the stuff. And what happens? Joshua 7, they go up to fight the battle of Ai. And what happens? Israel loses. Many perish. And finally, it comes to be known where Joshua, God has told Joshua that this is because of Achan's sin. He is brought out. His family is brought out. His grandparents are brought out. His little children are brought out. And all the people of Israel were told, stone him to death because of his greed and his covetousness. You think of Judas willing to betray the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. You think of Ananias and Sapphira. You know, they were tithes, you know, let's just say maybe it was 50%. Does anybody here tithe 50% or above? No, Ananias and Sapphira tithe more than you. But because they lied and they were deceitful before Peter, Peter said, you have not lied to me, you've lied against the Holy Spirit. And they were struck dead because they connived amongst themselves to say, let's just say we only got this much money, but we'll give all the rest. Covetousness is idolatry and God hates it, brethren. Uh, Look at how it's just included with these other sins. Colossians 3.5, Pastor Steve just preached on this a few weeks back. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and purity passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. God hates greed. John Trapp, one of the Puritans, said this, a ship partially filled with silver to the point of sinking 
could hold ten times more as much silver. So is the covetous man. Though he have enough to seek him, yet he never has enough to satisfy him. And that's what covetousness is. You're never satisfied. And, and you know, you think about contentment as the idea of being satisfied, but in covetousness, you are never satisfied. Well, let's look at the next sub-point here to cultivate contentment. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. What, what we have to understand here is contentment does not come from having enough earthly possessions. Oh, I've got enough furniture, uh, you know, I've got my closets full of clothes, you know, and all of that. Now I can be content. No, it's a matter of your heart being satisfied with God and Him alone. Is God enough? Is God enough? Is Christ enough to know that He's died for you? It's not a matter of acquiring. Listen to Arthur Pink. He says, contentment is the product of a heart resting on God. It's the product of a heart resting on God. It is the blessed assurance that God does all things well and is even now making all things work together for my ultimate good. That's why you can rest in God. The, the word here for a contentment means to, to uh, be sufficient, be adequate. It's in the passive voice. It has the idea of, of, of being content with such things that you have and being satisfied you know, John the Baptist and the early chapters of Luke, you know, the soldiers, what does he say? Be content with your wages, right? What are some ways that you can know that you are a discontented person? Well, are, are you always thinking and talking about money? Do you envy what others have? Are you a compulsive shopper? Are you in financial trouble and have excessive debt? Charles Spurgeon said, Covetousness and discontent and complaining are as natural to man as the thorns that are in the soil. You don't have to plant weeds and thorns. They grow on their own. And the same is true with man. They don't need to be taught how to grumble. Well, How can we grow in contentment? Right? Because we all struggle with that, being discontent. At certain times, maybe it's something as simple as the six red light in a row when normally it's all clear, uh, you know, whatever. But um, how can we cultivate contentment? Listen to this. Listen to this. The key to contentment is not raising your standard of living. It's lowering your desires. Did you catch that? The key to contentment is not raising your standard of living, having a an extra zero or two in your uh, savings account or whatever, that extra car, but lowering your desires. Thank God every day for what He's sovereignly given you, whether it's a lot or whether it's very little. Thank God for that. Whether it's a, a cup of rice that will sustain your body till the next day. <clears throat> Express your faith by generously sharing and giving to others. Jeremiah Burroughs has written an excellent book, written several books, but The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's a rare thing 
Christian contentment, he says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Every condition. We delight in that. We submit to that. We believe God is sovereign. We say that so much here. So we should have Christian contentment. Listen, this is what Christian contentment is not. It's not some stoic view that claims apathy as a virtue. It's not a sturdy resolution to just grin and bear it. We don't have enough for this or whatever. It's not that at all. It's not even a natural constitution that's inclined to quietness or an easygoing person. No. Paul stating in Philippians that he had learned contentment. I want you to turn back to Philippians 4, please. Paul says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. I know how to get along in humble means and also to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now, Paul says in verse 11 that he has learned, I have learned to be content. Okay, But in verse 12, when he says, I've learned the secret, it's, it's a different Greek word completely, and it means to initiate into mysteries, to learn the secret of something. That's why our translators translated, I've learned the secret. It's initiating into mysteries, a, a, a completely different word, and it's passive here. So that is, he was instructed from outside that he's learned and has been initiated into these mysteries of being content, whether he's filled or going hungry, and whether he has abundance and, or suffering need. Think of, you know, being to Af- my trips to Africa and India and just meeting people and having people prepare meals for me, you know, like in the evening and seeing that they have so little, they go out to get a chicken, they prepare it so, you know, lusciously and, and all of that. And, and you, you think of these people that work 10 to 12 hours a day and they're just so filled with joy. They have so little, you know, and, and it's just amazing the contentment that they have or how and that where our missionaries, Siddharshan's at in, in really poor rural India and, and and how the people can be so content with so little possessions. You see, material things can just clog us. It, 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 can, it can cause us to not think rightly about the basic things of living for God's glory. The Proverbs say, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than to have great treasure and the turmoil with it. See the wisdom of Solomon here? Do you see that? Like He knows that great treasure brings turmoil oftentimes. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord. In the first 12 chapters, the writer has been setting forth all the spiritual riches we have. And, you know, I think Pirates of the Caribbean and other movies, you know, they come across a big trunk of gold coins, right? And what do they do? They dig their hands in it and they pick it up and the coins just run down their arms. That's what the writer wants us to do with the spiritual wealth that we have in Christ. He wants us to reflect about on on all of the wealth that we have. Dig our hands into the spiritual wealth. 
Hold it up and soak it in. Just a few examples. 4.14, therefore we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. More riches, more riches. 10.10, by this will, we have been sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 12, just a few weeks ago, we have come to Mount Zion. Dig your hands into the spiritual riches and remind yourself of all of that wealth that you have in Christ. A little application just on these two before we plow ahead. Every one of God's commandments are, the broken, are broken because of money love. You think of the disease and materialism that spreads about as rampantly as COVID-19 Omicron uh, did, uh, weakening the immune system and leads to other sins. Money love, we're told, is idolatry. That's having another God before him, right? You you think of the, the idea of money love and the desire for money is when that's greater than a desire for God. You think of the pride that it leads to. You think of even the fourth commandment, our catechism today, on the, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But what happens with money, love, it's like, hey, that's one more extra day, and I get time and a half. I might get double time even. I don't, I'll, see the, those, I'll see the church next week. Ah, that overtime, you know? Really? Really? I mean, people think like that. Um, people kill, and they hate because of money. Families are divided because of money. People steal because they want more money. And then when they're caught, they lie about it. Right? (laughs) You see how all of this is is so connected. People lie and cheat on their taxes as well. Brothers and sisters, there is no security in wealth. There's no security. You think of this uh, invasion into Ukraine from Russia in all honesty, it doesn't matter how much money they have scattered around Ukraine. When the bombs start falling out of the sky and they're getting pretty close to you, it really doesn't matter. You don't have security in the bank account. You don't email Putin and say, but wait, I'm one of the most wealthiest ones. Uh, move the bombs to my poor neighbors. You can't do that. We have no security. Their wealth, wealth doesn't bring any security at all. Proverbs 23 and verse 5, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. For when you set your eyes on it, it is gone. Wealth makes itself wings like an eagle and flies towards the heavens. He who trusts in his riches will fall. Furthermore, there's those that love money are vulnerable to get-rich schemes as they come along. The multi-level marketings and all of this. There may be one or two, a couple that are Legitimate, most of those are get-rich-quick schemes. Um, The lottery continues to thrive well here in the state of California, right? It's like, oh, just a little bit, just a little bit. Well, think of the the guy that buys lottery tickets every single week over the course of 30 years, how much he would have if he was just prudent and saved, right? Casinos are alive and well, you know, and that's a whole other topic, gambling, 
Is it permissible to play for pennies or something like that if you're playing with some, some brothers or something like that? But I'll tell you what, going to the casino every day with payday and these men that blow their money and they come back and they have to tell their wives, it's beans and rice this week again. I was feeling so lucky. I just had to go to the ATM to just get a little bit more. That kind of stuff is condemnable. God's design, he does have a design for gaining wealth. You know what it is? Hard work. Working with your hands. It's offering somebody something of value. It's, it's developing a skill or, or designing a product in exchange for money. The more skill and value you have, the more you will be paid. Think of engineers, lawyers, accountants, plumbers, all of these different things. Proverbs 10.4, poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So, that was a lot. Let's move on here. And I want you to see this. Uh, look, let's go back to Hebrews. Um, in verse 5 there, being content with what you have for, notice that word for, for he himself has said, and what has he said? I'll never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Christ's sustaining presence for us is comforting as God's people. For indicates the strongest reason for contentment. God has promised His ongoing presence to us. And, you know, God's Word gives us commands and give us imperatives, but God is so good to give us the rationale and the reason of why we should be free from the love of money and be content with what we have. And here, it's very simply the assurance of God's unfailing presence. It's intended to strengthen the original hearers. It's intended to strengthen us, that His presence is always with us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He has said, as in the perfect tense in our text there, uh, it's when the writer refers to God Himself saying it's equivalent to Scripture. It's happened several times in chapter 1, chapter 4, verse 3. For we who have believed to enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my wrath. I like the way one grammarian put it. For he himself has said, and the statement is on record, I will not, I will not cease to sustain you and uphold you. That's the force of it. He has said it. It's on record. It will never be removed. He will sustain you. But the problem is, is this particular quotation you can't locate exactly in the Old Testament, right? He says, he has said, right? And, and it's even in the NAS, like all caps, it's, it's coming somewhere from the Old Testament. And I think it's coming from several texts because you see these texts uh, alluded to explicitly in some places and then implicitly in other places. So, for example, think of Jacob. The promise to him in 28.15 of Genesis. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to the land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Think of Deuteronomy 31 and verse 8. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail or forsake you. Do not fear. Be not dismayed. You'll see the fear, right? He says, I will not be afraid, right in the next uh, verse here. Joshua 1.5, probably the most prominent one. 
No, you know, think so that Moses has died, Joshua's taken the lead, he's looking at the river, they're about to cross over into Canaan, and, and do you think that's an easy thing? I mean, he just lost his mentor, right? Um, Moses, and now he's the one to take control, and all he knows is what the spies came back to report. You remember that? He saw them with his own eyes. They were like giants, they were huge. And, and, and at the prospect of that, him t- leading the people, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. That's bomb to a soul of somebody that needs to get the courage to press on. I will not leave you or forsake you. David said to his son Solomon, 1 Chronicles 28, Be strong and courageous and act, and do not fear or be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until the work of the service of the house of God is finished. So all of these verses and many more, right, kind of are drawn from the writer. Remember, the writer to the book of Hebrews, which we don't know the author, we will someday in heaven, but um, is a masterful exegete of the Old Testament. The whole Levitical system, the role of angels, and all of that, and especially understanding the, the new covenant and fulfillment of the old covenant. And then even here, he takes these from these various texts. And by the way, if you think, well, that's probably good for Joshua. It might even be good for the ultra-spiritual in the church today. But I just don't have enough faith to believe that he'll never desert me and will never forsake me. Well, let me tell you this. I want you to note something about this. There's five negatives in this phrase in the original Greek. Each one strengthens the other. It becomes such a super strong promise. A double negative goes with the first verb there that I will never desert you in the original, and then a triple negative to the verb that I will not forsake you. And so those stacked negatives strengthen what is being said. Let me put it another way. In English, what happens with double negatives? They cancel each other out here. In the Greek, it just piles up. This is solid truth. You can take it to the bank. It is sure. 2 Timothy 4.10, this word for desert occurs here. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. That's the word. God will never desert you as his child. That's great news. We sing this ripping hymn, particular Baptist uh, from the 1800s. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, although all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Isn't that beautiful? That is beautiful. Spurgeon preached a sermon on this text. The title was simply, Never, no, never, no, never. (laughs) The five negatives there. The voice inflection was mine. (laughs) This is great news. For those of us that are prone to discouragement, to depression, to feeling like you're alone, this is great news. This is faith-building truth that we're looking at today. This is stuff that you take home and you take it to the bank. 
This is stuff like, even as, as in our prayers, that if anyone sins, we confess our sins before him, he's just and righteous to forgive him. We take that promise and we throw it back up at God, as it were, and so too here. You said, God, you'll never desert me. You'll never forsake me. Though you may feel distant, I will choose to believe this truth. And I'll get on my knees and pray until I sense your presence any, any sense, until I sense your presence comes nearer to me because I'm believing the promise. He is a shepherd of your soul, child of God. You believe this promise and you have to believe that he's working a thousand, probably millions of different things in your life alone, working all of these various things of what will happen when you get home your car, on the freeway, going home, all of these things, working all of these things together, networking, as it were, through different providences in your life, all for your good and for His glory. Because He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. The psalmist says in Psalm 35, I've been young and now I'm old. I've yet to see the righteous forsaken. Well, let's look at verse 6. Trusting God leads to contentment. You see, God's promise to never forsake us gives us great boldness to claim what comes in verse 6. Since He never forsakes us, divine help is ever-present. He elicits a positive response of faith. And, and, and we will say with confidence. I think of uh, Psalm 46 and verse 1. God is a what? Very present help in time of trouble. So first of all, a confession of confidence to God. The, the promise in, at the end of verse 5 was in the first person, right? I will never desert you, and I will never forsake you. And so the response of the listeners is also in the first person. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? You see, verse 6 is a response of faith from the people of God in response to that promise at the end of verse 5. And it's, it, notice here, it's, it's, it, he, the response is in the first person, right? The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. But notice right before that, it says that we confidently say, we collectively say. This is the only place in Hebrews where the listeners are actually um, the subject of the speaking. This we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? This is the kind of thing we're going to see in a couple weeks, later in chapter 13, where we offer the fruit of lips, where we offer a sacrifice of praise. Through Him then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of the lips that gives thanks to His name. That's what verse 6 is. It's the fruit of the lips. And this confidently, it's, it's the idea to be confident, but even courageous. We will confidently and courageously say, we don't have time to turn back to Psalm 118, but, but certainly uh, that's what the writer has in view. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's 118 of verse 6. Uh, verse 7, the Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph to those that hate me. 
It's a confident confession that the Lord is my helper. Now, you remember in the garden, Adam had named all the animals, but there was not found a helper for him. So what happened? He puts Adam to sleep, takes out a rib. The Lord says that that he will find a helper suitable to him. And so, of course, the man wakes up. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, woman, whoa, this is a suitable helper, right? (laughs) And so in the sense that Eve, and in the sense that you women are helpers to your husbands, so too God is a much mightier and greater helper to us. You see, we may be going through all manner of trials, health difficulties, difficult providences, But in the light of this truth, of this verse, we must never be those that become so despondent, so discouraged. We must have the right perspective, God's ever-presence with us, that He will never leave us and forsake us. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian's progressing on. He comes to the slew, despond. There, others have passed freely through. He's struggling. His arms are flailing. Suddenly a big man comes up, and what does he do? He puts his hand out and helps him to come out of the slough to spawn. And his name was Help. His name was Help. God is a helper to us as well. Picture of David. Kids, you know David and Goliath, that story? You guys know that, right? Adults, you know that story. Here comes little David. What is he, 17 maybe? Something like that. He's got five little stones and he's tired of hearing that giant bring shame to the God, Yahweh. And what happens? He just takes those little stones and he starts with the slingshot, right? And and, and you think, David, you don't have a chance. He's a giant. There's no way you're going to conquer him. But God was with him. And so he does conquer him. Think of other examples uh, in Elijah's day. He comes to the widow's house and make me make me a meal. And then the, the widow says, I've, "I'm literally I, I literally only have like enough meal and enough oil for one meal for myself." He goes, "Make me a meal, and it will not be exhausted." And what happened? But God, God was there. The meal and the oil never was depleted. You think of the feeding of the five thousand. What is it? Five loaves and two fish, or something like that. But God, <laughs> and they were fed. Well, also you see this, uh, the security that we have, right? The Lord is my helper. Ah, I will not be afraid. There's security there in that statement. You see, with God, He's an ever-present helper, and we need not fear man. What did Jesus say? Fear not them that kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear Him, right? Who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. This is a a glorious, God-centered boast. (laughs) It's beautiful. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What in the world can man do to me anyway? Right? If I'm serving this sovereign God, what can man do to me anyway? There's an account of Christendom. Uh, in the second century, he was brought before the Roman emperor, and he was threatened with banishment. And the dialogue kind of went like this. Thou cannot banish me from this world. It is my father's house. The emperor says, but I will slay thee. 
Nah, though you can't, said the noble champion of the faith, for my life is hid in Christ and God. The emperor said, I will take away thy treasures. No, no, but thou canst take away the treasure. My treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. The emperor says, well, I'll drive thee away from man so that thou will have no friend left on earth. (laughs) No, no, you got it wrong again. I have a friend in heaven whom thou canst not separate me. I defy thee, for there is nothing that you can do to hurt me. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? A couple of very quick points of application. The goal of your life should not be material wealth, but rather spiritual wealth. Secondly, our attitude towards money reveals a lot about our character. Remember that question I asked at the beginning. It's a mark of your devotion towards God. J.D. Rockefeller, became one of the richest men in the world, right? A uh, hundred years ago, he's young, and he was asked, or reportedly, uh, he was asked how much money he wanted back then in the teens or the 20s or whatever it was, and he answered a million dollars. And then his friend asked, well, after you have the million dollars, how much money do you want? And he said, another million. And isn't that really the way it is? You cannot be a lover of money and a lover of God. You cannot serve both. Don't be like Esau. Remember we saw Esau back in the middle of chapter 12 here who exchanged his heavenly treasure for earthly things. Ecclesiastes 5.10 The ladies will be on this at the next ladies Bible study if you want this expounded. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Some love the thrill of acquiring money. For others, it's the idea of hoarding it. Misers are not concerned with acquiring it, but tenaciously holding on to what they have to be a Scrooge. And brethren, lastly, find your treasure in Christ. Is He not worthy of all of it? Our worship and adoration, he has set us free from the slavery to materialism. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor. Why? So that we might become rich. He's the only way of salvation. And even today, the offer still stands Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We come confessing our sins, we come repenting of our sins, turning from our sins, coming in faith that we believe He's the Son of God and that He died for me. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You even for the text today that has challenged us in many ways and the comfort that we have. Lord, have Your way in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.